Greetings, and welcome to Etzheim's weekly podcast, recorded live in Richardson, Texas. We invite you now to join us for one of our synagogue's Shabbat messages. Well, Shabbat Shalom. Uh, before we start, I wanted us to, we were the, as you know, we're in the middle of a series, a fairly long series on uh, the life of Elijah and Elisha, about halfway through right now. Uh, but I'm, the Spirit of God impressed me with all the different uh, specific needs we have in the congregation to take a pause uh, in the middle of the series. And to beginning next week, I'm going to start a new series, a very practical series on dating, courtship, marriage, family, and children. Very practical series. I really am going to encourage you to bring, to bring your friends and to be here for this series. Uh, and said, so we're going to take a, a, a couple month pause and then focus on these topics and then later on resume the, the series on Elijah and Elisha. So today we are still in our series on Elijah and Elisha. Today's part five. Uh, last time we saw Elijah going up to heaven, as you remember, in a chariot of a fire. So you would think this is the last time we'd ever see Elijah in the Bible, right? Well, we'd be wrong, <laughs> because we do see him one more time on the Mount of Transfiguration. So turn with me, turn with me to Luke chapter 9, beginning in verse 28, Luke 9, 28, and we have it on the overhead as well. Uh, and it says this, about eight days after Yeshua saw this, he took Peter, James, and John with him up to a mountain to pray. As he was praying, the appearance of his face changed. And his clothes became as bright as a flash of lightning. Two men, Moshe and Eliyahu, Moses and Elijah, appeared in glorious splendor, talking with Yeshua. They spoke about his departure, which he was about to bring to fulfillment at Jerusalem. Peter and his companions were very sleepy, but when they became fully awake, they saw, and they saw his glory and the two men standing with him. As the men were leaving Yeshua, Peter said to him, Master, it's good for us to be here. Let us put up three shelters, one for you, one for Moses, one for Elijah. He didn't know what he was saying. While he was speaking, a cloud appeared and covered them, and they were afraid as they entered the cloud. A voice came from the cloud saying, This is my son, whom I've chosen. Listen to him. When the voice had spoken, they found that Yeshua was alone. The disciples kept this to themselves and didn't tell anyone at that time what they'd seen. Now, in all three of the so-called synoptic Gospels, uh, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, the account of the, of the Transfiguration is the pivotal moment where we see the answer to the question that has been posed all throughout all three Gospels up to this point. And the question is this, who is Yeshua? So, for example, we read in Mark 4.41, who is this that even the wind and the seas obey him? Or Luke 7, 49. Who is this who forgives sins? The question, who is this, comes up over and over again throughout the Gospels. And eventually, there's a climactic place in Matthew, Mark, and Luke where the answer is given. And it's right here. The transfiguration. And at that point, Yeshua turns his face towards Jerusalem and the crucifixion and the resurrection from this point forward. Uh, there, the, therefore, the, the uh, um, transfiguration is the turning point in all three of the Synoptic Gospels. This is the climactic answer. This is the climax 
of the first part of the narrative of the Gospels. Uh, this is answering the key question, who is this? So to look at the transfiguration is one of the key ways to know if these three things we have on the overhead. Number one, who Yeshua is. Number two, what he came to do. And number three, how you can connect to him. Who he is, what he came to do, and how we can connect to him. So number one, what does the transfiguration tell us about who he is? Well, we have to look at the imagery that's purposely employed here. I'll put this on the overhead. The imagery is lightning, clouds, the voice of God, glory. Now, does this sound familiar to you, this imagery? It should, because this is, I put this overhead as well, this is a recapitulation of Mount Sinai. This is a recapitulation of the Exodus. In the Exodus, God delivered our people from Egypt, and he did it apparently through a cloud of glory. In the daytime, this glory cloud looked like a pillar of white smoke or a cloud, dazzling with the brilliance of God's Shekhinah. And at night, it looked like a pillar of fire shining with its own fiery glory emanating from within it. The glory glory cloud kept Pharaoh's army from coming after Israel. The glory cloud led the children of Israel to Mount Sinai. And then the glory cloud came down on top of Mount Sinai. And and we see all the same imagery here now in the transfiguration, on the Mount of Transfiguration. Fire, lightning, cloud, voice of God, glory. So what was the glory cloud? We'll put this on the overhead as well. The glory cloud was a sign or representation of the transcendence and majesty and greatness of God. The glory and the cloud and the dazzling brilliance and the effulgence and the brightness, it was a way of visually expressing The transcendence and the majesty and the greatness and the glory of God. So, what is the cloud doing here now uh, on the Mount of Transfiguration? What is the meaning of this text? And the answer is really quite astounding. Because when Moses came down from Mount Sinai and survived being in God's presence, we're told that his face shone. Uh, Exodus 34, verse 29. But Moses came down from Mount Sinai with the the two tablets of the covenant of the law in his hands. He wasn't aware that his face was radiant because he had spoken with the Lord. When Aaron and all the Israelites saw Moses, his face was radiant and they were afraid to come near him. So when Moses finished speaking to them, he put a veil over his face. Now, now, note that Moses' face was shining with what? With reflected light. It was partial and fading and merely reflected. Uh, It was reflected glory. In some ways, Moses was like the moon because the moon shines with reflected light. But this passage here in the Gospels is telling us that Yeshua is the sun, S-U-N. Because what's amazing here in Luke is that the glory, Luke doesn't overhead, the glory does not come down as on Mount Sinai, but it comes out. It doesn't flash down from the sky. It emanates from Yeshua. Yeshua is the very source of this divine light. He is the Shekhinah, the glory of God. You don't have a lightning flash here. You know, a lightning flash is brilliant light, and then it's over. But the text says Yeshua's actual body, uh, his clothes and his face, in a sustained way, 
emanated this super brilliance, this glory of light. In the overhead again, Yeshua is the source of it. And what this means is this. The glory cloud in the Tanakh, in the Hebrew Scriptures, was a partial, provisional, remarkable, helpful representation of the glory of God. But Yeshua is the glory of God. Hebrews 1.3 The sun is the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of his being. In other words, for example, say you're walking by a tree. Uh, and how do you know its location and its shape and its height and its color? Because the light reflects off the tree and it hits the retina in your eye and it is given the exact representation of the location and the shape and the height and the, and the color of the tree. And what this passage is saying is that there's all these interesting representations of God in the Bible, right? Burning bush and, and smoking torch and, and glory cloud. But it's saying Yeshua is the exact representation of who God is. He is the glory of God. Which in essence is saying he is God in the flesh, God incarnate, Emmanuel, God with us. He's the perfect, unsurpassable, unique, final revelation of the being of God. This passage tells us who he is in a way that nothing else does in the Bible. You know, Psalm 19 says the heavens tell the, tell the glory of God. Uh, the stars, they tell something of the glory of God. They're all signs of the glory of God. The oceans tell us something of God's glory. But nothing like this. Again, the overhead. Yeshua, the Bible says, is the exact representation of God's glory. Now, he doesn't have reflected glory. He's the source of the glory of God. Uh, when in essence, uh, he's God hitting the retina of your soul. He's God coming out and hitting the retina of your heart. Yeshua is the ultimate revelation of God, the ultimate way to understand who God is. Nothing surpasses him. He is the perfect representation of who God is. Yeshua himself says in John 14, 9, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. Now, let me give you just two implications of what the transfiguration means when it tells us that Yeshua is the glory of God. That he's the exact, uh, perfect, unsurpassable, final, ultimate representation of who God is. So number one, and this is the overhead, the first implication, Yeshua isn't just one more prophet like Moses and Elijah. He isn't just one more prophet trying to get near God. He is the God that all the prophets are trying to get near. He's not just one more prophet speaking forth the word of God. He is the word of God made flesh. And we're shown here that Yeshua isn't one more prophet, one more teacher, one more priest, one more sage in a row. No. Peter says this. Look, look at Luke 9.33. Peter says, Master, it's good for us to be here. Let's put up three shelters. One for you, one for Moses, one for Elijah. And then the text says he didn't know what he was saying. <laughs> now, of course, this word shelter in Greek and in Hebrew it means tabernacle. He says, let's build three tabernacles. Why? Well, Peter's saying, well, we have the Hall of Fame here. We've got Moses, Elijah, Yeshua. Look at them all. Let's put up a row of booths or Sukkot or tabernacles. And then what immediately happens after this is a response to Peter's suggestion. The cloud comes out. Luke 9.35. A voice comes from the cloud saying, This is my son whom I've chosen. 
listen to him. Moses representing the law, Elijah representing the prophets, they're all testifying to Yeshua. But when the voice of God booms forth, Moses and Elijah fade away. And Peter, James, and John see Yeshua only. Only he remains. The transfiguration is telling us Yeshua is not one more prophet, or one more priest, or teacher, or sage in a row. He doesn't fit into a booth or a tabernacle. Rather, he is the word of God come to tabernacle with us. You cannot fit him into your hall of fame or your pantheon. He's not one among many. He is utterly unique. Think about it. This text is saying the glory of God emanates from within him. But his face does not uh, radiate with the reflected glory of God like Moses, but rather he is the glory of God. He is the glory cloud. He's the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of his person. This is one of the first amazing implications of the transfiguration. Uh, you know, and if this claim that Yeshua is the glory of God is true, then he's infinitely beyond any prophet or, or indeed any created being in the universe. He's in a class by himself. <clears throat> Moses and Elijah, as I said, fade in comparison. And, no, and a very noted biblical scholar, N.T. Wright, he puts it like this. We'll put it on the overhead. He writes this. How can you live with a terrifying thought that the hurricane has become human? That the fire has become flesh? That life itself has walked into our midst? Yeshua faith either means that or it means nothing. Either means the most devastating disclosure of the deepest reality of the world, or it's a sham and nonsense. Most people, unable to cope with, with saying either of these, are condemned to live in the shallow world in between. On the overhead here, the average secular person, if they read the Gospels, can, can't say that Yeshua is wicked, and they can't say he's crazy or insane. But based on Yeshua's own words and deeds, the only other rational alternative is that he is the unique, ultimate, perfect, final revelation of the being of God. So either you have to totally reject him uh, as wicked or insane, or completely build your life around him every minute of every day. It is all or nothing. Yeshua did not leave you any other choice. There is no middle ground. But ironically, that is where most people in the world end up. And if that's you today, you are living in the shallows and the shadows of an imaginary limbo world that one day will come crashing down upon you. Here's the second implication of the transfiguration. The only real Yeshua is a supernatural Yeshua. A transfigured Yeshua. A glorious Yeshua. He is not just a human being. Yes, he's fully human. But he's also fully divine. He's supernatural. He's a supernatural being who was born miraculously into the world. He lived miraculously every day of his life. He was raised from the dead miraculously. Now, ironically, you know, here in the, uh, years ago, actually in the early 20th century... All the great thinkers of all the mainstream churches in North America and in Europe, they came together and they had a big council of churches and they said, we modern people are no longer able to accept the supernatural. 
modern man is no longer able to believe in miracles. So in order to attract people to our churches, we need to take the miraculous element out. We need to de-supernaturalize Christianity, they said, if it's going to continue to have any influence in the world. And so they did. When you take the supernatural out of Yeshua faith, there's nothing left. Instead of having an infallible Bible, all you've got left is a human collection of writings. And you pick and choose you know, which ones to accept and which ones to reject. Instead of Yeshua, the incarnate deity, born of a virgin, you simply have a great human teacher with a lot of so-called God consciousness in him. Instead of a miraculous, historically verifiable resurrection, you have instead a beautiful symbol of rebirth. And instead of becoming a Yeshua follower through being born again by immersion in the Holy Spirit, you instead have a believer simply means being, like Michael was saying earlier, being a good person, living a good life. In other words, if you take the supernatural element out of Yeshua faith, there is nothing left. You have a secular, humanistic, um, man-made, man-centered religion. And interestingly, ironically, instead of attracting people when they did this, all these mainstream establishment churches are in steep, steep decline. And the growing congregations are those that believe in the Bible and believe in the supernatural and they preach Yeshua and Him crucified and resurrected for our sins. So for example, there are actually more Presbyterians today in Korea where they preach the Word of God than there are in all of the U.S. and Scotland combined where Presbyterianism was founded. (laughs) The liberal Presbyterian churches in America and Scotland are dying. The evangelical Presbyterian congregations in Korea are booming. There are more Episcopalians and Anglicans today in Nigeria than in the U.S. and England combined. Again, the Episcopalians and Anglicans in churches in America and in the U.S. are are liberal, but those in Nigeria are conservative, Bible-believing evangelicals. Why do you see this? Because real Yeshua faith is a supernatural faith. And people realize the true article. That's why the original, all the original Yeshua followers, they weren't afraid to die under, under persecution of the Roman Empire because they believed in the resurrection and eternal life to follow. And in fact, as we've discussed before, the resurrection is actually one of the most best attested events in all recorded history. It's real. It happened. Our faith is built on fact. Rock solid fact. True faith is supernatural faith, but it's also a faith based on provable fact. And therefore, a supernatural Yeshua, a transfigured Yeshua, is the only real Yeshua. So on the overhead, uh, number one, the transfiguration tells us who he is. Uh, Number two, the the transfiguration also tells us something about what he did, what he came to do. Look at Luke 9.34. While he was speaking, a cloud appeared and covered them. And they were afraid as they entered the cloud. Note the text says they were afraid. And rightly so. Out comes the glory cloud and begins to surround and envelop them. And every place in the Hebrew scriptures where the Shekinah glory cloud appears, contact with it is lethal. When it comes down on Mount Sinai, with lightning and smoke and thunder and earthquake, the people were told to stand off, right, on pain of death. And that even if one of their cattle were to touch the mountain, it would die. 
So here comes the glory cloud around Peter, James, and John. And it says they were afraid. I guess so. <laughs> In almost all cultures at all times, people have a sense that there's some unbridgeable gap or chasm between us uh, and the deity. Uh, some barrier between us and God or the gods. Every culture has therefore produced temples and tabernacles, uh, mediation apparatus to mediate between the people and the presence of God and to, to petition him. Uh, and mediation apparatus includes rituals, priests, sacrifices, offerings, something to mediate God's presence. So, for example, in Buddhism, it says to reach the divine, you have to have a transformation of consciousness. And it takes all your life in an enormous discipline. There's something between us and God, something keeping us from the deity, a gap, a chasm. And only, by the way, only modern Western people, apart from every other culture in history, think it, it ought to be simple to bridge this gap. Modern Western people think getting close to God should be easy. So here's the typical modern approach. I was in trouble, uh, so, so I prayed to God. If he's out there, uh, nothing happened. What's the matter with this God? You know, there is a God, you know. He's, I should be able to talk to him anytime I want. Uh, and, and he'll send me a text or an email or a response. <laughs> you should be able to just go right in and make your request and get an answer. It should be simple. But even modern people, whether they ask God for things or they just are trying to get near him, draw close to the Lord, experience his presence, they eventually begin to experience what everyone else has always known, that there's a problem. There's a barrier. A barrier that must be bridged must be mediated. So we read this in Isaiah 59, verse 2. Your iniquities have separated you from your God. Your sins have hidden his face from you so that he will not hear. So just try to come into God's presence. If you're honest, you'll really become aware of your faults and your flaws and your inadequacies and sins. You immediately become aware you try to enter God's presence of your cowardice and pride and vanity and your selfishness and dishonesty. You become aware of your laziness and jealousy, uh, uh, your, your meanness and resentment, your unforgiveness and judgmentalism. You just have to realize there's a gap that has to be bridged. So everyone knows that there's a gap between God and man. Modern Western society is the first and only culture to try to, to deny or pretend it doesn't exist. So back in our text, here comes the glory cloud. And Peter, James, and John are rightly terrified. What happens? An amazing thing happens. Somehow, this time, when the glory appears, they do not die. They don't die. <laughs> they live. And if you rightly understand it, this is an amazing passage. God's glory cloud envelops them, and yet they live. You know, when Moses was on Mount Sinai, he said, Lord, show me your glory. What did the Lord say to him? Look at Exodus 38, uh, I'm sorry, Exodus 33, verse 20. God says, you cannot see my face, for no one may see me and live. But here in Luke 9, it expressly says they saw his glory. Look at Luke 9, 32. Peter and his companions saw his glory, and the two men standing with him. And they actually saw his face. Look at Luke 9, 28. Yeshua took Peter, James, and John with him, went up to the mountain to pray. As he was praying, the appearance of his face changed. 
and his clothes became as bright as a flash of lightning. They saw his face, the face of God glorified, and yet they lived. What does this mean? Put in the overhead, please. The transfiguration is teaching us that Yeshua is not, is not only the God on the other side of the chasm, he's also the bridge over the chasm. This text is telling us Yeshua faith is vastly different than any other religion on the face of the earth. Because everything all, everything all other religions tell you is the things you must do to bridge this gap. This tells us Yeshua has done this for you. So on the overhead, the disciples didn't bring a sacrifice, but they lived. Why? Because Yeshua is the sacrifice. The disciples weren't perfect, but they lived. Why? Because Yeshua was perfect. The Gospels and the Transfiguration tell us this. Unlike any other religion, Yeshua does for us all the things that the other religion says you have to do in order to bridge that gap. So when you trust in the Lord through Yeshua, and approach God the Father through His Son, Yeshua, when you take hold of and rest in and trust not in your record and your transformation or your sacrifices, but in His, the Holy Spirit, the glory of God, comes into your life. Now, how is this possible? Because of this little uh, place that may not seem significant in English, uh, but in the Greek, it's the pivot of the whole passage. Look at Luke 9, verse 30. Two men, Moses and Elijah, appeared in glorious splendor, talking with Yeshua. They spoke about his departure, which he was about to bring to fulfillment at Jerusalem. Now this little word departure is amazing. Because in the Greek, it's the word exodus. Exodus. The text says Moses and Elijah were talking with Yeshua about his exodus. Because the death and resurrection of Yeshua is the ultimate exodus. Moses only liberated Israel from economic and and social oppression. But Yeshua, through his death and resurrection, if we repent and truly trust in him, liberates us from sin and death itself. So Yeshua is not only the God on the other side of the gap, and the overhead police, he's also the bridge over the gap. So the transfiguration, number one, tells us who Yeshua is. Number two, what he came to do. And then number three, lastly, it also tells us how we can connect to him. How you can personally connect to him. So the text tells us four ways, and the overhead, four ways of doing this. It says, pray to reality, come in community, rest in your family status, and submit to God's authority. Let's look at all four of these. Number one, pray into reality. What do I mean by this? At the beginning of the passage, look at Luke 9, 28. We read this. About eight days after Yeshua said this, he took Peter, James, and John with him, went up to the mountain to pray. About eight days, it says. Now, whenever Luke connects his incidents like this, it's always significant. Matthew, Mark, John, the other Gospels, they tend to connect their accounts all the time, you know, one to another. Luke, much less so. But when Luke does this, he does this for a very particular purpose. So the fact that Luke connects the transfiguration to what happens eight days before means Luke is saying, you need to understand these two events together. So what just happened? Look back earlier in the chapter, Luke 9, verse uh, 18. Yeshua asked his disciples, who do the crowds say I am? They replied, some say, Yochadat Hamapil, John the Baptist. Some say Elijah. 
Another still, others say, one of the prophets of long ago has come back to life. But what about you, he asked. Who do you say I am? And Peter answered, God's Messiah. And then we have a parallel account, a more famous account in Matthew, verse, uh, Matthew 16, 16. It says this, Simon Peter answered, You are the Messiah, the Son of the living God. Yeshua replied, Blessed are you, Simon Bar-Jonah. This wasn't revealed to you by flesh and blood, but by my Father in heaven. God revealed to Peter that Yeshua was not just a prophet. He was the one, the Messiah, the divine Son of God. So what's, uh, what's the immediately following transfiguration all about? It's about this. Peter now knows something intellectually, but he doesn't yet know it existentially. He hasn't internally experienced it yet. In fact, we read this, the very next verse, we read this about uh, Peter's revelation and confession. Just follow me. Look at Matthew 16, 21. From that time on, Yeshua began to explain to his disciples that he must uh, go to Jerusalem and suffer many things at the hands of the elders and the chief priests and the Torah teachers, and that he must be killed and on the third day raised to life. Peter takes him aside, begins to rebuke him. Never, Lord. This will never happen to you. And Peter turns, Peter, Yeshua turns to Peter and says, Get behind me, Satan. You're a stumbling block to me. You don't have in mind the concerns of God, but merely human concerns. So Peter doesn't really get it yet, despite his great confession. He gives the right answer. Listen to me well. He gives the right answer on the theology quiz. Peter gets an A on his Messianic doctrine exam. But that's not enough. Something has to happen where what he knows intellectually he also now knows existentially. And when I was growing up, a friend of mine would never wear a seatbelt in the car. I used to always bug him about it all the time. Uh, he said, oh, that makes me uncomfortable. I don't know, it makes it, it's confining. I don't like it. At least long ago in the days before cars made that annoying sound if you didn't put your seatbelt on. Uh, but he never would wear his. One day, all of a sudden, he started wearing his seatbelt all the time. He never took it off again. So I said, what's up with this? You know, why the sudden change with the seatbelt? He says, well, my cousin was just in a really bad car accident, went through the windshield, uh, almost died, ended up with over 100 stitches in his face. He wasn't wearing his seatbelt. So this changed my friend's attitude about seatbelts. Now, did my friend get any new information about seatbelts? No. What changed him? This. What he had known with his head became existentially real to him. It wasn't until he existentially came real to him that it got into his heart and changed his life. Now class, true or false? The Lord of the universe thought it worth his while to come down into this world and experience infinite agony and loss in order to have a relationship with you. True or false? True. A hundred percent true. True or false? Because of what Yeshua has done, God himself now finds you an absolute delight. True or false? True. So why does criticism still bug you? Why are you often anxious and worried? Why do you have secret addictive behaviors? Why do you feel like you always have the need to prove yourself to other people? Why are you so easily irritable? Uh, why are you harsh and unkind and strident and belligerent and out of control? 
You see, the things about who you are in Yeshua that you know intellectually, you don't know existentially. Or these things wouldn't be true of you. So this is what you need. You don't just need to believe that Yeshua is the Messiah, the King, the Redeemer, the Son of God, the God the Son. You also need to see His glory. The word glory in Hebrew, kavod, it means weight. It means significance. The glory means what He says becomes more weighty. What He's done becomes more affecting, more existentially affecting than what anyone else says. His love becomes more glorious, meaning more real to you. More real than the criticism of any other people. So you're not so easily upset or thrown off your equilibrium. You exhibit the fruit of the spirit of patience and long-suffering and gentleness and self-control. As Messianic believers, we here at time we know so much intellectually. But do you know it existentially? Are you living it and experiencing it? Is it real in your life? You need this. You need this word to become flesh within you. More than anything else. You need to have Yeshua shine to the eyes of your heart. You need the spirit of Messiah to radiate from within you. How does this happen? It's a hint right here. Look at Luke 9, 29. It says, as he was praying... The appearance of his face changed. His clothes became as bright as a flash of lightning. As he was praying, the glory came. It's time as you worship, worship, as you pray, as you intentionally seek him, as you take every thought captive to Messiah, as you seek to have Yeshua shine to the eyes of your heart, the Holy Spirit will help you do this. The Holy Spirit will make Yeshua real to you and radiate within you. Sometimes when you're worshiping the Lord, the light of God shines forth within you in a special way. The Spirit of God witnesses to your heart. And sometimes the Spirit surprises us. You know, when we sing, it's the Son of God coming with healing in His wings. Amen. Do you have any idea what I'm talking about? Yes. I hope you've had these divine, sweet experiences of the Lord's presence in worship and prayer. Do you know what it's like when these truths, that you've always known intellectually, but that really affecting your life, or changing or transforming you, or, or, or uh, giving you any kind of supernatural joy, do you know what it's like when the penny drops? And these truths become not just intellectual, but existential. They become experiential. And your life is transformed. You need this. Seek the Lord and His face for more of Him. It is available to you. So number one, pray into reality in your life. Pray this into reality. Worship this into reality. That's number one. Number two, come in community. Now the average American says, Yeshua, you know, um, I see you want to give me this experience uh, for, of your glory. That, that's great. But could you just give it to me in private, please? Can I experience your glory just all by myself in private? I don't want to do it around anybody else, with anybody else. All these people around me, you got Peter, James, John. 
You know, I might get emotional or something. I don't want them to see me like that. Or I might feel convicted and start confessing my sins. I don't want anybody else to know about my sins. So let's go to the top of the mountain, just you and me, Yeshua, by ourselves. Leave Peter, James, and John behind. I just want my own private experience of your glory. And basically, Yeshua says, no. <laughs> You'll need to overcome your anxiety about community if you want to go deeper with me, he says. Amen. Because what happened here, I want you to notice this, Yeshua brought a small group fellowship up to the mountain with him. <laughs> Peter, James, and John to the top of the mountain. It was a great small cell group meeting. <laughs> if you want Yeshua to shine, if you want to see his glory, if you want it to become existentially real to you, not just to your head, but to your heart, so that he really transforms your life, it goes better in community. Yes. Judaism is always about a corporate covenant people, not about individual Lone Ranger believers. We hear Yeshua better in a group. A group protects you from getting off into some own weird private interpretation that has no basis in reality. A group protects you from coming up with these theologies that no one else has ever believed before. That for 3,500 years, Judaism has never heard of. The Messianic Jewish life was intended to be lived in community. We all need someone who's spiritually ahead of us, or at least our peer, to help guide us. And, and, and to bounce things off of, and to disciple us, and to hold us accountable. You also, by the way, need someone spiritually behind you, that you can help mentor and disciple. And then these things people hold behind you, they, they ask a lot of great questions, because they don't always understand something. And you think you understand it, until they ask you to explain it to them. And then you realize, you really don't understand it. <laughs> and so you, as you grow, you learn and you grow and you mature. From the overhead here, please. A community is important. Number one, you need someone ahead of you. Number two, you need somebody behind you. And number three, because you need someone different from you. Someone of a different race or ethnicity. Someone of a different culture. Someone of a different socioeconomic group. Someone different from you who also loves Yeshua and is also pursuing hard after him. I challenge you as time to intentionally make it a point to fellowship with someone different from you. As time, as a group, come to Yeshua in community and be much more likely to see his glory. So number one, pray it into reality. Number two, come in community. Number three, experience rest in your family status. Notice when the glory cloud comes down, there's a voice. What does this voice say? Look at Luke 9, 35. A voice comes from the cloud and says, This is my son, whom I have chosen. Listen to him. God the Father says, This is my son. Now, this has happened once before, right? The last time was at his baptism, his immersion. The Holy Spirit comes down upon Yeshua, which is basically the same thing. It's the voice, voice of God coming down. And the voice from heaven says this in Matthew three seventeen. This is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. What does it mean to have the glory of God come down upon you? It's not just some abstract sense of power. It's not just some spiritual goosebumps. It's the assurance that you are part of God's family. Look at Romans 8.16. The Spirit himself testifies with our spirit that we're God's children. 
That's one of the key things the Holy Spirit does in your life. You may know intellectually, I'm God's child, but here's what you need. You need to hear existentially in the center of your being the voice of God saying, despite everything you've done, I love you. You are my son. You are my daughter. Yeshua was enveloped by deep darkness so that you could be enveloped by God's love and light and love and life. His parental love for you on the overhead. And the Father says, I want to assure you of this, of my radical, unconditional, infinite, permanent, parental love for you. It comes to you through my son Yeshua. This will give your life a bedrock to stand upon, so you will never be moved or shaken again. You'll be assured of God's love for you as his child, and you can forever rest in that. You need the glory of God, and the glory of God assures you that you are his son, that you are his daughter. It comes down upon you, and it says, you are my beloved child. So number one, you need to, to pray it into reality. Number two, come in community. Number three, rest in your family status as God's child. And finally, number four, submit to God's authority. If you want to connect to God, you must submit to his authority. Look again at Luke 9.35. The voice says, from the cloud, says, this is my son whom I've chosen. Listen to him. In Hebrew, the word for listen or to hear is the word shema, which means listen and obey. The word here in the Greek is uh, acuite. We get our word acoustics from this. We link to hearing, acoustics. But the word here is in the imperative. It's in the command. It's almost like hyper-hearing or obeying. If you're in Yeshua, then God is your Father. But like in any family, the children must honor and obey their parents. If you truly love the Lord, you'll want to obey Him and live and walk in obedience and holiness. Now if you don't have any desire to obey God's Word, your heart hasn't been changed. And you're probably not His child. So obedience out of a new covenant heart is crucial. God says, at the transfiguration, this is my son. And because of what He did, you can be my son, you can be my daughter as well. So why obey? To, uh, uh, to honor and delight him who did all this for you? Why obey? Become more like him who did all this for you? Why obey? Uh, to better know him who did all this for you? Submit to his authority out of a complete certainty of that, that uh, you have his love. You know, it's an old hymn by John Newton. It goes like this, heaven on the overhead. Our pleasure and our duty, though opposite before, since we have seen his beauty, are joined, depart no more. To see the law, love, next slide. To see the law by love fulfilled, and hear his pardoning voice, transforms a slave into a child, and duty into choice. Amen. I stand and pray. Hallelujah. Music team, you could come up. Hallelujah. Father, we thank you today 
we thank you for your love. For loving us so much, you gave us your only begotten Son, Yeshua the Messiah. Yeshua, who is the radiance of your glory and the exact representation of your being. To see Yeshua, Lord, is to see you. Yeshua, we confess that you are God's glory incarnate. You are the Shekinah. To see you, Yeshua, is to see the fullness of God's glory. Moses prayed, show me your glory, Lord. And you, Yeshua, are the answer. You are the fulfillment of this prayer. You became flesh and tabernacled with us. And we have seen your glory. Glory of the one and only Son who comes from the Father, full of grace and truth. Peter, James, and John saw your glory on the mountain and yet lived. Because you, Yeshua, are not only the God on the other side of the chasm, you are also the bridge over the chasm. Your death and resurrection is the ultimate exodus. You liberate us from sin and death itself. So now, Lord, help us, Yeshua, to connect to you. To connect to you through prayer and worship. To connect to you, not just intellectually, uh, but existentially, uh, experientially. Help us to connect to you, not just with with our heads, but with our hearts. We want to know you, Lord. For you, Yeshua, we want you to be more and more real to us every day. Weighty and significant to us. Help us to press into you, Lord, in worship uh, and in prayer. And in community, not just as lone rangers. Increase my love, which is so lacking, Lord, for my fellow brothers and sisters right here at Eskheim. And help me, Lord, to listen to your word and to obey and to walk in your holy light. Amen. For we pray this all in your holy name. Hashem Yeshua. Amen. Shabbat Shalom.